Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Amos chapter 7, <clears throat> and uh, last week we, uh, we were in Amos chapter 6, and uh, Amos chapter 6 really dealing with what is, uh, what is our role as a believer in our generation, and uh, some of the things we talked about was, uh, you know, questions that we ask ourselves, am I looking for and hastening the day of the Lord? Uh, that was one question. Another question is, am I honoring the Lord with my time, with my talent, and with my treasure? And then finally, am I standing in the gap and praying on behalf of my generation? And as we went and we looked at those those concepts or those those subjects, those themes in Amos chapter 6, it kind of spilled over into Amos chapter 7. So I read the first seven verses, um, actually the first... Uh, yeah, I think it was the first seven verses. No, the, yeah, verse six verses. Excuse me, and uh, you know we really it really fit in with what we were talking about in uh, chapter six. And but this morning I want to go back to those two visions in chapter seven as we continue through the study. And I want to kind of back up and kind of dig into it a little bit deeper because we just really kind of touched on it last week as it applied to uh, what we were talking about. So Amos chapter seven verse one. Now these are visions that Amos the prophet received. Uh, first one is a vision of locusts. Verse 1 of chapter 7, Thus the Lord God showed me, Behold, he formed locust swarms at the beginning of the late crop. Indeed, it was the late crop after the king's mowings. And so it was when they had finished eating the grass of the land that I said, O Lord, forgive, I pray. O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Well, let's look at this first vision. First of all, <clears throat> in Amos's vision here, he has this, this vision, and it says that God formed the swarms of these locusts. It's interesting, it says that God formed them. Uh, they didn't just happen, it wasn't just the enemy. God formed these locusts to invade the land. And whenever you read about locust invasions in the Bible, it's a sign of God's judgment on a sinful people. And so... <clears throat> These, these, uh, these locusts, it was really God bringing destruction in the form of judgment on his people who had uh, drifted so far away from them. Now, one thing that's interesting in here, it, t- it gives us kind of the time frame of when this locust invasion happened. It says the swarms invaded at the beginning of the late crop after the king's mowings. So the first crop in the land of Israel at that time, it went to the king to be used for his cattle. It's kind of like in our day and age, we have a tax. You know, you have to, you, you, you know, your paycheck, your payroll tax, it comes right off. You don't even see it. It goes straight to the government. It's kind of like this. If you were in, of course, and that's an agricultural economy there, you know, as you're receiving your, your harvest of your hard work and labor, the very first crop, man, it went to the king so that he could take care of his uh, cattle. You know, that was never God's will for Israel. It was never God's will for Israel. God's will for Israel was that he would be their king, that they would follow him and worship him. God says, you don't need a king like the nations around you. You just worship me. And God wasn't going to require that of them. But he said, and of course, the people, they looked around, they said, we want a king just like every other nation's got a king. And so God told them 
Okay, you want a king, you can have a king, but he's going to take the first and the best of everything you have. He's going to take your firstborn. He's going to conscript him into his army. He's going to take the fat of the land. It's going to go to him first. So this was never God's will to have this crop, this first crop going to the king. But you know what? Because they departed from God's perfect will, they made their own lives miserable. They brought it on themselves because they didn't want to follow God and his perfect will for them. So this first crop here, it went to the king. The second crop was for their own cattle. But again, because they had, they had steeped themselves or because they had st- fallen into sin and they had just drifted so far away from the Lord, now even that crop was taken away from them. And it was really the fruit of their sin. You know, so often the, the Bible tells us the enemy, Satan, you know, he wants to steal, steal, steal excuse me, kill and destroy. He's a thief. And that's the consequences of sin. Sin just takes the best of everything from you and I. And so this is what they were. Because of their departing from God's will, their lives would be made difficult. They wouldn't have any crop that year. And so this is, a, again, this is a vision that Amos is receiving. And as he's seeing that, all of a sudden, man, he just... He just has to do something, and so he starts praying. And he's, first of all, he prays, Oh, Lord God, forgive, I pray. He's, he's praying that God would forgive the people of the land of Israel. And he says, Oh, that Jacob may stand. What does he mean by that? Well, unless God forgives Jacob's sin and turns away his wrath from Jacob, how can Jacob stand under the weight of his sin? That's, that's true for any of us. We need God's grace and God's mercy. We can't stand apart from God's shed blood, you know, for, apart from Christ's sacrifice for our sins. The Bible says there's no one good. We, we, we can't stand. We'd be crushed under the weight of our own sin if it wasn't for Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. And so he says, Oh, that Jacob may stand, for he is small. And really that could be translated weak. I, you know, as, I don't know how many times you have prayed a prayer asking the Lord for forgiveness, but this is exactly what, how I feel when I'm praying. Lord, I'm so weak. I'm so, man, Lord, I need you. I, need, I, need, I can't stand without you, Lord God. Why does Amos pray about Jacob and not Samaria, Ephraim, or Israel? You know, that was kind of the, the names that the upper northern trend tribes of Israel was known as. They were called Ephraim. Sometimes they're called uh, Israel. Other times, other times they're called Samaria. But here Amos is praying about Jacob. Why is he calling them Jacob? Well, I think what was taking place is Amos was reminding God of his covenant with Jacob. Because Jacob was a man who did not deserve God's grace. Jacob was a swindler. He was a cheat. And yet God chose him to be the father of a great nation. And, and there was nothing special about Jacob other than God's grace on Jacob. It was a, he was a man who did not deserve God's favor. God's covenant was not based on Jacob's performance, but on God's grace. And that's true for you and I as well. God's favor towards us. You know, sometimes when we're doing good or we think we're doing good, you know, I'm not sinning, I'm not, or we think we're not sinning. You know, we, we get this impression, as long as I'm doing good, then, then God's pleased with me. But as soon as I'm not doing good, now God hates me. And that's not true. God's love is not based on our performance at all. It's based purely on His love and His grace towards us. Now, I don't know about you. Sometimes I don't like being reminded of things. You know, when I, it's funny. Um, I don't know how many kids 
have done this. I know I, I did this to my own dad, and, and I remember other kids doing it to their dads. You know, a father sometimes makes a promise. One of the promises my dad made was, you know, he was going to take me hiking because he knew that I loved hiking. My dad wasn't a hiker. He, was, he didn't get into that at all. But he knew that I loved hiking. And so one time, and I was a teenager, and I was starting to go in the wrong direction, and he said, you know, I'm going to take you hiking one of these days. And he never did it. And, and, you know, I would remind him of his promise. Dad, you promised. But, you know, oh, something came up. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. On his deathbed, he apologized to me for never taking me. I'm like, Dad, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. But when I was a teenager, it was a big deal. And I don't know about you. Sometimes we make promises, and then people remind us. They hold us accountable. Hey, but you promised. Don't you hate that? I hate it. <laughs> so it's like, don't make promises. But you know what? God doesn't hate it when you and I remind him of his promises. In fact, God wants us to remind him of his promises. God's promise, you know, was that if his people turned their hearts to him and repented of their sins, that he would forgive them. And and, and so God, so he's saying, remember your covenant. Basically, Amos is saying, God, remember your covenant to Jacob. And and so God's like, that's right. That's my promise. You know, sometimes we look at this, this, this vision and, uh, the, of course, the next vision and uh, go, wow, you know, Amos prayed and it says that God relented. What does it mean by relented? Well, in this context, it means to be sorry, to be pity, to have pity and to comfort and comfort in the way of kindness. You know, the Bible says that it's the goodness of God that leads you and I to repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And so here Amos is praying and God relents of this judgment in, the, in this vision. Now, did God actually just change his mind? The Bible says that God does, is not like you and mine. He's not like a man. He doesn't change. But here, evidently, it appears that he did. But you know what I think is more the case? Is that God was doing a work in the heart of Amos. God was trying to transform Amos into someone who had compassion. But not just a compassionate person, but someone who had compassion enough to do something with their compassion. And that meant to pray for someone, to intercede for people. You know, God does that in each one of us. He reveals things to you and I. We see it and it's like, man, it's not for us to just go, oh, you know, have compassion. I feel bad about that situation. But he wants you and I to intercede on behalf of others around us. I don't know if you've got unsaved family members, maybe, or, or loved ones or coworkers, or whatever, or friends that, that, you know, your heart is just breaking for them. Well, let me encourage you. Don't just feel bad about them. Start praying for them because that's what God wants to do. And so now Amos has this second vision, this vision of fire. Verse 4. Thus the Lord God showed me, behold, the Lord God called for conflict by fire, and it consumed the great deep and devoured the territory. Then I said, O Lord God, cease, I pray, O that Jacob may stand, for he is small. So the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. So this vision says the Lord God called for conflict by fire. Well, conflict here, it means to strive or to contend or to conduct a lawsuit. God had a case against his people Israel because they were in sin. They had rebelled against him. And God was calling them on the carpet, basically. He was calling them to judgment, a a lawsuit, a conflict by fire. Fire is another picture of God's judgment throughout the Bible. And it's a fire that consumes everything. It devoured all the territory in this vision. It just, it just consumes everything, even 
consuming the deep. Now that's talking about the ocean. Probably in 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 the case of uh, of Amos, you know, probably talking about the Mediterranean Sea. That 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 fire is so consuming that there's nothing that can quench it. And that's so true because it speaks of God's unquenchable wrath against sin. Jesus talked about a time when God's wrath is going to be poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. And it's at that time known as the Great Tribulation. In Matthew 24, 21, Jesus is describing that time. He says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. That time... That's when Christ's wrath is poured out on a, or God's wrath is poured out on a Christ-rejecting world, unquenchable, a time like nobody has ever experienced before or ever will after that. Jeremiah wrote this in the book of Lamentations, chapter three, verse twenty-two, it says, "Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not; they are new every morning. Great is Your faithfulness." There are many hymns written off of that, of that verses there in, in Lamentations, but it's so true. If it wasn't for God's mercies, none of us would survive His judgment. And so Amos, again, he has this vision of this, this all-consuming fire, and he gets down on his knees and he starts praying. O Lord, cease, I pray. In other words, stop from destroying them in your righteous judgment, I pray. Oh, that Jacob may stand, for he is small. Again, the same prayer. And it says, so the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be. Again, God's not fickle. He's not just, you know, you, you know he's not impressionable, but he's doing a work in Amos's heart and getting Amos to, to pray on behalf of others, to be moved enough to have compassion. Well, now we pick it up where we left off. Verse 7. Thus he showed me, behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not pass by them any more. The high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. Now, a plumb line is used to determine if something is perfectly vertical or if it's straight. And so this is this picture. God, there's this picture of this plumb line, and he's measuring the people of Israel. He's comparing the people of Israel according to his plumb line, which is his righteousness. And obviously, they're not straight. They're crooked. You know, so often we judge ourselves by our own standards. We all tend to do that. It's, it's human nature. You know, we, we tend to compare ourselves to others. I can feel really good about myself if I can find others that are doing worse than me. People that are worse sinners. People that are, you know, they're, they're always, you know, whatever. I, and I look at them and go, wow, at least I'm not as bad as them. You know, that's such a mistake for us to compare ourselves to others or to compare ourselves by our own standards. Because the problem is, there's a true standard of measure, and it's not you, and it's not those around you. It's God. It's God's standard of righteousness. And it's His righteousness, His standard is found in His Word. And when we compare ourselves 
to our to others, and we use others as our standard, or even ourselves as our standard, our judgment's going to be off because we're using a faulty standard. You know, I was in the in the uh, well, I was in the in the military, but also I became a, a equipment technician for many many years at IBM before I got into my la- my last career before I got laid off, and that was technical writing. But I used to be a maintenance guy. You know, and and, and I, we'd have this whole slew of test equipment. I tested all kinds of stuff, and uh, so you know, we'd go around and we'd measure things. You know, as long as it fell into a certain you know voltage range or current range or whatever it was, you know, things were good. We used it to troubleshoot whatever. But the thing is, once a month, those instruments had to be calibrated because they could drift off. And if you never calibrated, pretty soon you'd be measuring something, going, "It's good," but it's it's not good. Because it's not, it's, it's the measurement's off. And so you'd have to take it to something that had a known standard. And they'd, they'd, they'd take your instrument, they'd plug it into this known standard, and they say, and then they'd do the tweaks and go, okay, now it's calibrated. You get a little sticker on your thing, it's calibrated. Now you can go use it to measure stuff. God's word is our standard for calibrating you and I. We need to compare ourselves to God's standard, God's word. Well, God here is going to judge the people of Israel according to his standard. And guess what? They weren't meeting God's standard. Now, what surprises me is I would have thought at that moment, Amos would have jumped up to pray. But you know what? I think God cut him off at this point. It says, you know, I think before Amos could even pray, God tells him, I will not pass by them anymore. What is that talking about? I will not pass by them anymore. Well, that reminds me of the Passover. When the children of Israel were in the land of Egypt, God said, I want you to take the blood of a lamb and I want you to put it over the doorposts of your house. And the angel of death is going to pass over those houses that have that blood applied to the doorpost. But all the other houses that didn't have it, they were, the angel of death was going to visit those and the firstborn child of all the families in Egypt would die. And it's a picture of what Jesus Christ has done, what God's done through Jesus Christ for you and I. Because we have the blood of Jesus Christ shed for our sins and because we repent of our sins and believe that Jesus died on the cross and we invite him into our heart, that blood is now covering us. And now the angel of death, it passes over us. We're spared from hell because of that. And But here it looks like God is saying to Amos, Amos, I'm not going to pass over them anymore. This was a time they had, they, God had sent, you know, and you would think, well, that's pretty cruel of God. But you know, God had sent prophet after prophet after prophet pleading with the people to repent of their sins to return. And they had rejected him. They had rejected him. They had killed some of them. Isaiah, it's not in scriptures, but according to, to the Hebrew history, he was cut in half. I mean, they, they just, they hated these prophets. Amos, will find out, he was hated too. So finally, God says they have to bear the punishment. They, they have to take uh, the, the, the punishment for their sin. And so God was no longer going to pass over them. Now they're going to bear the fruits of their disobedience, their rebellion. Of course, and that's referring to the Assyrian captivity that would take place. It says the high places of Isaac shall be desolate. The high places... That is basically where the worship of idols took place throughout the land of Egypt, or excuse me, land of Israel. They go up into these high places, they have these temples, and it'd be a real spiritual setting, you know, up on the mountain and stuff. But really what they were doing is they were worshiping idols instead of the true living God. And you notice he calls them the high places of Isaac. And I was trying to, like, why Isaac? I can understand why he prayed in regard to Jacob, but why Isaac? And the only thing I can think of is Isaac's name means laughter. 
And I think God is looking down at, at the foolishness of what these people were, were worshiping, and he's just laughing. He's just mocking them. This is foolishness. Sometimes I think of the things that you and I worship in place of the Lord God. It's foolishness in God's eyes. It says, And the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And that's referring to the temples that were erected in Dan and Bethel for the worship of calves rather than the worship of the Lord God in Jerusalem. I will rise with the sword against the house of Jeroboam. This was a fulfillment of a prophecy to Jehu. And I was looking up, and apparently the scholars think that it was Jonah that gave this prophecy to Jehu, um, although it's not recorded that Jonah gave it. But Jehu had received a prophecy. And who was Jehu? Well, if you know the history of Israel, they had a king, a very wicked king named Ahab. And his wife was Jezebel. You probably, that sounds familiar to you, right? Um, anyways, they were very, very wicked. And uh, God judged them. And God raised up Jehu to destroy Ahab and Jezebel, which he did. He did. He, he, God raised him up, and, and God used him as his instrument of judgment against Ahab and Jezebel. However, let me read Second Kings 10 to you, verse 29. It says, However... Jehu did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, that is, from the golden calves that were at Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight, and have done to the house of Ahab all that was in my heart, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. So God says basically four of your descendants are going to be on the throne of Israel. But it says, But Jehu took no heed to walk in the law of the Lord God of Israel with all his heart, for he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin. This was a prophecy that God had given to Jehu. Well, Jehu eventually died, and his son Jehoahaz reigned in his place. And when Jehoahaz died, his son Joash reigned in his place. And after Joash died... Jeroboam the second, not the first one, not the son of Nebat, but Jeroboam the second, reigned in his place. When this prophecy is taking place by Amos, this was the time frame that Jeroboam the second was the king. And Jeroboam, he died not by the sword. For all we know, he could have died of natural causes. His son, Zechariah, reigned in his place. Zechariah was the fourth descendant of Jehu, and he reigned for a whole total of six months and he was assassinated by Shalom. And then Shalom reigned. He reigned for, the Bible says, a whole month. He reigned for 30 days, and he was assassinated by a guy named Menahem. And so Zechariah, being the fourth descendant from Jehu, was the last of Jehu's line to reign on the throne of Israel. And this is exactly what Amos is prophesying. The Lord God gave him to prophesy was that um, the, the sword would, would, would wipe out Jeroboam's throne, or not his throne, his house, meaning his descendants. Now, we need to take a step back here before we move on. Because recall what I said that uh, the Lord God was doing a work in the heart of Amos, right? He's had these visions, and so uh, he sees God's judgment on the land, and he starts praying for the people. And, and God has, has, has turned Amos into an interceder. He's a prayer warrior. And God may do that with you. I pray that he does. That, you know, you, you find a situation, somebody that's, that's close to you, and, and your heart is moved with compassion enough that you start just praying. You, you get regularly pray for them.
But you know, just because God has moved in your heart to pray for the lost doesn't mean that they're automatically going to repent. They may never repent. But the important thing is God's doing a work in you. And what's interesting, so here's this picture. Amos is praying for these, for the people of the land of Israel. And Amaziah, who is the priest of the worship of the calf in Bethel, he rises up in opposition to Amos. Look at verse 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. For thus Amos has said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from their own land. That's not what Amos said. Oh, Israel would be carried away captive, and the house of Jeroboam would fall by the sword. But he didn't say Jeroboam is going to be killed by the sword. Amos's words were twisted, and it was a falsehood. It was a lie that Amaziah was saying. You know, Amos was in good company. David, the guy who wrote almost most of the Psalms, he penned these words in Psalm 56, verse 1. And it's interesting, that psalm, it says, To the chief musician set to the silent dove in the distant lands. So if you're familiar with that song, you can hum it while I'm reading. I'm just kidding. I always go, you know, okay, I I don't know what song that is. (laughs) But here's what he penned. Be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day, for there are many who fight against me, O Most High. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I have put my trust. I will not fear What can flesh do to me? All day they twist my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather together. They hide. They mark my steps. When they lie lie in wait for my life, shall they escape by iniquity? In anger cast down the peoples, O God. You number my wanderings. Put my tears into your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. In God I will praise his word. In the Lord I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Amos was in good company. David knew what it was like to have his words twisted. You know, to to have, have these enemies because David is trying to do the right thing for the people. Amos is praying. God's changed his heart. He's he's praying for someone, and yet he's receiving this opposition. And I want to encourage you, just because God raises you up to intercede, that doesn't mean all of a sudden everything's going to be perfect. There's going to be spiritual warfare. You're going to have opposition. It's going to happen. And you'll be in good company because David had it. David experienced it. Um, Amos experienced it. Even Jesus experienced it. At his trial before the high priest in Matthew 26, verse 59, it says, Now the chief priests, the elders, and all the council sought false testimony against Jesus to put him dead to death, but found none. Even though many false witnesses came forward, they found none. But at last, two false witnesses came forward and said, This fellow said, this fellow, it's kind of a you know, derogatory term, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And we know that's not what Jesus said. Jesus was referring to his body. He wasn't referring to destroying the temple and him raising it up in three days, although he could have. But that's not what he's referring to. His, twist, his words were twisted. And I just want to encourage you, you know, 
you start praying and God's changing your heart, you're going to have spiritual opposition because we don't f- battle against flesh and blood. There is this warfare going on in this world. Again, from what we know, Jeroboam II died of old age or something, but not by the sword. But the house of Jeroboam would die by the sword, which was fulfilled with the assassination of Zechariah, Jeroboam's son, and Jehu's Jehu's fourth descendant. But here, Amos is praying for them, and he still has opposition. The people that he's praying for, they're opposing him. Now, does that mean that Amos failed? Maybe he's just not praying enough, or he's, you know, his heart's not right. No. God was doing a work in Amos. But you know what Jesus said in Matthew 5.11? Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Man, rejoice if you're being persecuted. Now, um, Peter talks about you know, don't don't be. You know, sometimes people can be persecuted because they're sinning, or they're just being they're being jerks or whatever. And you you know, sometimes people get persecuted, Christians, and, and they've been acting like a jerk, or they're getting persecuted. And they go, "Oh man, I'm getting persecuted because of my faith." No, you're getting persecuted because you're weird. You know, you're doing some weird stuff. Don't don't get persecuted because don't give them grounds. I guess is what I'm trying to spit out. Don't give them grounds to persecute you. But if you are persecuted for Christ's sake, man, you're blessed. Jesus said. So verse 12, Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah. There eat bread, and there prophesy, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary, and it is the royal residence. They're basically saying, Hey, you know, you're you're such a traitor to the land of Israel. Go to Judah. Go to the southern kingdom. Prophesy there. Don't prophesy here anymore. We don't want to hear it anymore. Then Amos answered, verse 14, and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, nor was I a son of a prophet, but I was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore fruit. Then the Lord took me as I followed the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. I love Amos's response. Hey, hey, I wasn't raised a prophet. My dad wasn't a prophet. I didn't just you know, assume the mantle of, you know, it's the family business of prophesying. In fact, I was a sheep breeder. You could say he was a shepherd. And a, and, and a farmer, basically. And God called him. Again, Amos is in good company. Remember Moses? The man who God raised up to deliver the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt? Moses was tending his father's flock, his father-in-law, Jethro's flock, in the back of the desert. Forty years, he's back, he's back there, just, just tending sheep, taking care of sheep. No recognition, no, no, uh, you know, no nothing. And, and he's, just, he's just back there. And it was at that time that the Lord appeared to him and called him to deliver his people from, ban- from bondage in the land of Egypt. King David, just a shepherd boy. In fact, he was the runt of his family. You know, his father, Jesse, he didn't have much, he didn't have much uh, regard for his son. It, it's, he didn't think he would ever amount to much. Maybe you've grown up in a house like that and you, you have that... That baggage that you're carrying is like my parents, or my dad, or my mom. They never thought I would amount to much and stuff. David was the same way. David felt that way. Um, in fact, he had such low regard for David that when the prophet Samuel came to Jesse and said, Hey, I want to see your sons. 
because Lord God's chosen one of them to be the king of Israel. He didn't even bring David. He brought all his other sons because they looked presidential. They looked like they'd be a king. You know, maybe they're tall or whatever. Um, they had that look or whatever. Or they just He just had a higher regard for them. And Samuel's looking at each one going, man, that guy looks good. He looks like he'd make a good president, you know. You know, they say that most presidents are tall. I don't know if they all were, but, you know, you, I don't know. Anyways, these guys look like kings. And the Lord said, no, not him. And so they, they, they kind of like a runway, you know, pro, uh, just a person after person after person, son after son of Jesse before, before Samuel. And Samuel's like, that one looks good. And the Lord said, no, not him. Because God doesn't judge from the outside. God judges the heart. And so Jesse, his, David's dad, didn't even think it would amount to much. And yet he would be the next king of Israel. But he too was called as a shepherd boy. Isn't that interesting? They were called when they were tending sheep. You know, the Lord so often calls people into the ministry. You know, this is such a perfect picture of getting called into the ministry. You know, shepherds were not admired in David's day, or in you know, you know you, we have in the Christmas pro- program the shepherds. You know, they they they, they receive the announcement, the glad tidings of the birth of Jesus. They go into town. You know, shepherds were considered thieves. They were just like you didn't trust. You didn't want a shepherd around. You know, it's like lock the doors. The shepherds are around. You know, they had a very low reputation. They weren't admired in that day. And guess what? Shepherds aren't really admired today either. <laughs> Interesting. I don't know if you were watching any of the, the CNBC debate, this last presidential debate. I've kind of gotten wrapped up into them, so I like watching them. But, but uh, one of the, Mike Huckabee, you know, he is, he's one of the guys running for president. He was a Baptist minister. And uh, one of the news guys, you could tell, you could just, I could just sense, I could sense how he felt about ministers or, or people in the ministry. Because he said to Mike Huckabee, hey, you know, you were a preacher before you, you know, before you did this or that. You know, what do you think about Trump? You know, and stuff. And I thought, wow, that's kind of a, you know, you were a preacher. You can obviously tell he's not like you were a pastor. You know, you led a church or anything, or you know, minister. You were a preacher. So low self-esteem, or not low self-esteem. They're not admired today either. But you know what? That's who the Lord raises up in ministry is those who are doing the work of the ministry, those who are shepherding. Those who are doing the work without the title, without the recognition, just doing the ministry, and the Lord calls you. Again, Amos was also a tender of sycamore trees. So in addition to being a shepherd, he was a farmer. He's tilling the ground. He's planting. He's watering. He's harvesting when the fruit is ripe. He's working with his hands. He's in the trenches doing the work of ministry, and the Lord calls him. Sometimes, you know, as, as individuals, as Christians... You know, we get this, we get this idea, and, and I think it's a great, I think it's what the Lord lays on our heart that he wants to use our lives for his purpose. And I, and I, I don't know, I know with guys a lot, it's, I think anyways, being a guy, I kind of know, speaking for us guys. <laughs> you know, when, we, when we're little, we want to do something great. You know, I want to be a fireman. I want to save people out of fires. Or I want to be a soldier and, you know, fight evil people. Or I want to be a cowboy and, you know, whatever it is. We have these, these visions of what I want to be when I grow up. And, and when we grow up and we become Christians, you get saved. And it's like, man, I want, the, I want my life to matter for the Lord. I want to be used by him. And maybe you're here tonight, today, and you're like, I really want the Lord to use me. And so you're sitting around waiting, okay, Lord, I, 
I'm waiting for you to call me. And whatever you call me to do, I'm going to do. And, and so we just sit there and we're waiting for God to call you. But you know what? That's not how he calls you. He calls you when you're doing the ministry. When you're, when you're doing the work without the titles, when you're doing it without the recognition, you're just doing the work of ministry. That's when the Lord raises up people and calls them. That's, you know, that's, that's the best way to be called. And that's the way the Lord truly does call people. God, as you're doing that ministry or whatever it is, serving, it may not even be necessarily in this church, but you're doing ministry. You're ministering to others. God is going to start preparing your heart like he did Amos. He's going to give you a heart of compassion, a heart of prayer. And as you get in the trenches and start serving him, God's doing a work in your heart, preparing you. And eventually he's going to call you into whatever ministry. And I'm not saying like you're going to become a pastor of a church, but God's got a calling for each one of us as Christians. And each one of us wants to use, do something significant for the Lord. I hope you want to do something significant for the Lord while you're on this planet. Well, let me encourage you, just, just be about the Lord's work. Whatever the Lord lays on, whatever he lays before you, start doing it. If God gives you, you know, you, 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 you realize that one of your neighbors is struggling in this area, go minister to that neighbor. Because as you're doing that, the Lord is going to be doing a work in you as well as reaching out to that person. Verse 16, now Amos responds to Amaziah, Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel, and do not spout against the house of Isaac. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your wife shall be a harlot in the city. Your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword. Your land shall be divided by survey line. You shall die in a defiled land, and Israel shall surely be led away captive from his land. He's saying Amaziah's sons and daughters would fall by the sword. Now, we don't have a record of that in the Bible as, as this was fulfilled. Um, it could have been during the time when Shalom executed Zechariah because, you know, if Amaziah was a priest and he was kind of involved with the king, he obviously had an audience with Jeroboam. And so he, he, maybe he was like one of the close advisors. And usually when someone came in, they did a military coup and they killed the king. They usually kill everybody around them too because it's like we don't want anybody to try to you know, have a rebellion and try to get this guy back in or whatever. They would oftentimes, they kill a king, they would kill the sons of the king too so that there would be nobody that would step up and go, you know, I want to resurrect that, that dynasty or whatever. And so it's possible at that time that Amaziah's sons and daughters uh, were executed, or maybe when Menahem executed Shalem, or probably most likely after the Assyrian invasion. The, the, his wife, you know, whether that was literal, I'm, I'm guessing it would have been, um, became a harlot. And, uh, and he, Amaziah himself, died by the sword. We might say, well, yeah, but it's not in the Bible. Well, you can trust that it did happen according to the word of the Lord because every word of prophecy that God has spoken of has been fulfilled literally. That, that's why I look at New Testament prophecies. You know, you look at the book of Revelation, you go, wow, that's kind of an interesting story. It's true, and eventually it's going to happen. And, and some people go, well, it's all figurative. Well, I, I have a hard time with that because every prophecy that has been fulfilled in the Bible has been fulfilled literally exactly as it's been penned, exactly as God said. So why would all of a sudden God now do symbolic fulfillments? I, I don't see it. So that's just that's free, no charge for that. That's just my own opinion. <laughs> but in any event, you can trust God's word. And so I want to encourage you this morning because we're going to stop there. We have communion here in a few minutes. In fact, um, whoever's doing communion, you guys can come on up right now. Um, you know, I want to encourage you because I hope and pray that the Lord does give each one of us a heart of compassion. 
it's so easy in this day and age to look at those sinners and those people and, you know, look at other people and judge ourselves according to them. God doesn't want us to do that. God wants you to have a heart of compassion. He's trying to raise up people who will pray, who will stand in the gap in this generation. That's why we're here. We're here to stand in the gap. We're here to minister to those that are around us in our sphere of influence. I, I, lo- I love what Stephanie shared about, you know, um, just a- about where she's at and, and, and what she's the Lord's wanting to do, you know, through her. And I just pray that, you know, the Lord just does a mighty work through her in that. But that's true for each one of us. You know, God wants to use us in wherever you're at. Maybe, maybe it's your family. Maybe you're the only believer in your family or, you know, or, or in your, your, your job site or whatever, your sphere of influence. I pray that God raises you up to be an interceder, to, to stand in the gap. But I want to encourage you that, you know, you're, you're going res- to have opposition, but you won't be in bad. You'll be in good company. You're not going to be alone standing in that. Well, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to go ahead and, and have communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I thank you that uh, we have the record of, of these prophecies from Amos. And Lord, I pray that we can find that application, that Lord, that, that even this morning you're speaking to us individually. Lord, we want to be used by you. Lord, we want to, we want to have an impact in our families and in our, in our jobs and in our schools and our communities, Lord. Father, I pray that you would lead us and, and guide us and that, Lord, we might be doing the work of the ministry, Lord, and, and just, just getting out there and starting to do things, Lord, ministering, reaching out to people around us, Lord. And, Father, in doing those things that you will call us, Lord. And, and so we just uh, thank you for the reminder of that this morning. Father, I pray for each person here this morning. Lord, I don't know if they have a personal relationship with you this morning, but, Lord, just to realize that, Lord, the judgment that we are due, Lord, because of our sin, Lord, that you died on the cross to save us from our sins. Lord, you took your, you lived your life righteously, Lord, a life that none of us have been able to live. And, Lord, you died for sins that you didn't commit. You who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become your righteousness, Lord, that, we, that, that the Father would look at us and he would see us as justified, just as if we had never sinned before. And it's all because of your sacrifice on the cross. And Lord, this morning, I pray if there's anyone here that does not have that personal relationship with you, Lord, that they've never bended the knee and, and prayed to receive you into their hearts as Lord and Savior, that today, this morning, they wouldn't let this time pass without doing it. And I want to just encourage you here this morning as we're praying. I'm going to say a prayer that's known as the sinner's prayer. And it's just a prayer repenting of our sins and inviting Jesus Christ into our hearts to be our Lord and Savior. And this morning, I want to encourage you, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, we're going to be having communion here in a few moments. And the communion is open to anybody who has that relationship with Jesus. And this morning could be the the new start of a, a brand new life for you this morning. God wants to take each one of our hearts and our lives, and he wants to transform us. He wants to use us as instruments for his glory. And so this morning, if you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to tell you that God loves you, that he died on the cross to pay your price for sin that you committed. And he wants to forgive you, and he wants to come into your heart 
and start a relationship with you. He doesn't want you to follow a belief system. He wants a relationship with you. The living God wants to dwell in your heart to be your Lord and to be your Savior, to guide you through this life. And so this morning, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer with me. And God knows your heart. And if you pray this prayer and mean it from your heart, Lord God will answer that prayer. He will save you this morning. So let's pray. Father, I'm a sinner. Lord God, I have failed so much. This morning, Lord, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. Lord, I I ask that you would forgive me. I pray that you would come into my heart, that you would be my Lord and my Savior. I give my life to you, Lord Jesus. I love you and I thank you. I believe, Lord God, that you rose again from the dead. Thank you for being my Savior. Lord, help me to live a life pleasing you. Help me to live my life for you. Lord, transform my heart, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, this morning, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us on the cross. This morning, as we partake of communion, Lord, we just rejoice in that we remember what you did, Lord. And we thank you and we bless you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.